0: In the book of Revelation, uh, and uh, this week we are looking into chapter 2. Uh, a moment of um, honest confession, I really don't get reality TV. I don't know if you do, but some people do, um, but I just don't get it. Why would anyone want to watch reality played out in front of us on a screen? Right? It, it just defies understanding. I watch television to escape. Why would you want to escape back into reality? But some, for some people, it's a thing, right? It, it, they really enjoy watching other people's life play out in front of them. But the question is, is it even, is it even reality, right? Yeah, yeah, I see some people. So just this week, one of the participants of uh, this reality TV show called Married at, at First Sight, uh, she complained to the, to, the, to the newspaper that she was pressured Right, to say certain things, uh, so that you know, the story will go down a certain line uh, and the interest and ratings would go up. So what is it? Is it reality or is it marketing? Uh, because if it's really marketing, then I think the cost is too high. Right? The social cost is too high. We're toiling with real people, a real emotion, real marriages. That said, you know, so I don't understand. Why, why is it that so many people are riveted to the screen when they watch couples tempt each other, tease each other, swap spouses, you know, put it, be put in an island with all these attractive men and women? Uh, it's, like, I just think it's a recipe for disaster, right? Because if that happens in real life, you know, marriages then come under a lot of pressure. Marriages do fall apart. And if we are not careful, it can happen to our marriages too. Right? Whatever relationship we are in, it can happen to us. Right? That's the message I want to start off with. Um, the, the point I want to make is as we look at the seven churches that we're studying, we could just pretend that they're, that's a slice of reality. They're real people, real believers, right? just, just like us, but, maybe at, but at a different time. They have different struggles, but they are real followers of Jesus. And so that is a slice of reality. And we could be tempted to look at these set letters and say, yeah, we will never do what they do. We're different. But, you know, the challenge is that I think we, we, we ought to be very careful. We want to say whatever that they were struggling with, the warnings that Jesus gave to them, we need to take heed because it can happen to us too. All right, so have a look at, you know, just a quick look at all the churches. In general, there's seven churches, seven letters, Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, they're a bunch of mixed bag. Right? Two of the churches were really great, two were really bad, and most of them were somewhere in the middle. I call them part iron, part clay. They were good, right? They were being uh, commended for some things, but there were some things that were entrenched in their church that became a problem. It became a snare for them. Uh, and so the first and the last church uh, were not doing so great. Ephesus and Laodicea, they're, 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 Jesus had some very strong words to say to them. Uh, they were at the risk of losing their identity as God's people. The middle, the kind of the inner circle, the second and the sixth were great. Jesus had no criticism for them. Jesus commended them and encouraged them to persevere on. And the middle three, well, they were so-so. Alright, definitely a lot of things we can learn from them. And before we go into the first four churches, that I just want to make a connection between chapter one and chapter two and three. Right? You, you see it in the overall structure of each letter. Each of the letters had a very similar format, it goes something like this. Alright, it begins with a greeting to the angel of the church, you know, of Ephesus, right. Alright. This is followed by a description of Jesus, a title of Jesus that is taken from chapter 1, and I think the point that uh, Jesus is trying to make is that it is the same Jesus, the same victorious Jesus, who is risen from death and conquered death, you know, it's the same Jesus now speaking to the churches, uh, and, and as we go down to the promises, that's where it counts, right? So it's followed by a description of Jesus, usually from chapter 1, and then it's then this is immediately followed by the statement, I know. Like I found these, some of the most comforting words in Scripture. You know, imagine someone says, I know. Yeah. Just saying that makes you go, "Ah, oh, I know. I know what you're going through. I know it's tough. Right? Keep it up. This is Jesus commanding the churches. Uh, and Jesus had all good things to say to all seven churches. I know. Uh, and what follows is then a criticism, all right, a sharp criticism, except for the two churches that are great, Jesus, and nothing to complain about them. The rest of the churches, Jesus had something of concern and said, this I hold against you. And what follows them is a call to repentance. Do something about this or else, right? Something is going to happen. And then there is an exaltation to to listen. He who has he who has an ear hears what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, usually there's, they finish with the promise, right? To those who overcome, the one who conquered these challenges, I will give a reward. The reward is to be with Jesus, as described in various terms. But the point, I think, the point I want to make is this Chapter 1, Chapter 2, and Chapter 3 are, are essentially one block. And the reason why we can be confident that these challenges can be overcome is because in the end, Jesus has overcome them. Right? That that's the connection there. I have overcome the world. And therefore, as we listen to this, right, you know, whatever that these churches are going through, by trusting in Jesus, they can they, they can go they can get through with it, right? So let's have a look at the first church, the church of Ephesus. I describe. This church, right, the way I describe it, is a church with great duty but without passion. It's a duty without passion church. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? And so the church at Ephesus is a great church, right? It's a, a church with a long history of apostolic involvement. By that, there were big names associated with, ch- with this church. Paul was there for three years, right? Very long time for an apostle to be there teaching and growing the church. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, Timothy, Titus, all had connection with the Ephesus church. So in one sense, this is a church that has a long history, great, you know, foundation. Uh, And we know that there is a functioning elders at their church, even at the time of Paul. Remember Paul, just as Paul was about to go to Jerusalem, he gathered all the elders with him at the beach and he just shared with them and said, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm not sure what's going to happen to me. But you know what? As when I leave, I know the wolves are going to come and they're going to tear up this church. Your job as elder is to protect the church. Right? Make sure that you, you keep the sheep together, protect them. And in one sense, they've done that really, really well. Right? So we, when it comes to Revelation chapter 2, Jesus commends them for that. Right? You, you, you are able to pick out real apostles from fake apostles. You were able to pick out you know, the Nicolaitans were not Christians, they were a cult. You know, that practice wasn't really what God was, uh, was after. And yet it seems by the time it comes to the apostolic age, the church has kind of somewhat lost its passion. Right? It's doing its job well, but maybe it's just doing it out of a sense of duty. Right? It's just following rules, logic, rules. <clears throat> it doesn't have any, <clears throat> any passion. It's good at doctrine, and judging the truth, but that truth no longer inspire them, you know, to fire them up. Right. Uh, so I'd say that's a church that, you know, I will follow the rules, I'll just take the box. Uh, so when you look at verse four and five, Jesus, you know, Jesus warns them, you know, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Pretty, very serious things for Jesus to be saying to this church. Uh, Really, it's a surprise that the church of Ephesus is in such deep trouble, uh, spiritually speaking. It's a real warning for us that a church can start out strong and then just become an institution. It's just all about keeping regulations and rules. Uh, whatever it, whatever it was that verse five was referring to, when they did, there was a first Christian. we were not told here we could guess uh, or hazard a guess later. but this this whole scenario reminds me of some marriages, right How are we a church that is good at discerning the truth but have no longer have any passion or zeal for the Lord, right In the same way? How do we stop our love for Jesus from getting cold the same way that we stop marriages from getting cold, right? This is an analogy that kind of helps me to think about it. So just imagine when we first met the person that's sitting next to you that you're married to or you're dating. You remember those times? I see smiles. Yes, you better, Jay. (laughs) You remember what it was like? You know, the other person was the focus of your attention. You think about them all. You you don't just think about them. You think about what they like. What would they prefer? You know, how do they like their you know eggs? How you you think about making them happy, right? You, you want to please them, and that's how you started out thinking in terms of a relationship. uh and and after you got married, what tends to happen is that then there is the disengage. I hope that doesn't happen to you. What are you All good? Come and talk to me. No, nothing. I, I'm not. I'm just asking, I'm just throwing a generic question, but it seems like you It's speaking to you. Uh, What happens in a marriage then, you know, we just, after a while, there's a danger that we're just going through the motion, isn't it? Our hearts are no longer engaged. I really don't care whether she's happy or not and whether she, you know, it's just, just, that's that danger, I think, right? When the person no longer inspires you, right, to go all out for them and care for them and love them. Uh, What is true of a marriage is also true, can also be true, of our relationship with Jesus, right? Do we stop thinking what would please Jesus? Right? Jesus is the ultimate, you know, lover in that sense for us in our life. He's the one that we love. Is Jesus still the most important person in your life? See, here's here's the challenge, right? You can know all the truth and knowledge about Jesus, right? But if it doesn't, it doesn't do you any good unless you fall in love with Jesus daily moment by moment, right? You keep falling in love with Jesus. It can happen, right? That's my experience in terms of, you know, my walk with God. We know all the right information about Jesus, about God, but if it's just head knowledge, then there's a danger, because I think it breeds pride. And we we become disconnected from Jesus, and if a whole church becomes like that, then Jesus says, I'm taking that lamb stem away. From you, so what? What was Ephesus like when they first became Christian? Well, we got a snippet of that in Acts chapter twenty, right? In Acts, not twenty, Acts further back. Uh, When the Ephesians uh, first became Christian, they got converted to paganism uh, to Christianity. They freely confessed openly their sins to one another. They was they were so on fire. Right? They want to tell each other what they've done that was, that was displeasing to God before. They want to change. Many of them had background in sorcery and magic, and they gathered all their scrolls and burnt it. Right? That's a financial commitment there, because when they calculated the full value of those scrolls, uh, it's 50,000 drachmas. A drachma is what you earn in a day, right? Can you imagine someone would say, Why don't we just eBay it? We can get the money back. Right? They, don't, they, don't want, they don't want any of that, right? Why do we sell something that is not good for them? Just burn it. Right? That's the passion that they had when they first started, right? All, of, all or nothing for Jesus. They were radical, right? And I think that that's probably what it was like. That's what Jesus was saying, that they've lost some of that. Right? They've become institutionalized. And so, lesson for us. Let's commit to do the things that will bring joy to Jesus. And that must include reaching out to the people that Jesus cares about, right? the, the ones who are lost in the world. I, I think it's also about being counterculture, being radical in our love for Jesus. We know that the early church held their possessions in common. And whenever someone had need, they were generous. Right? You know, they were able to help one another. They were not bound by materialism the second church that we encounter in chapter 2 is like that this is a church that redefines what what does it mean to be wealthy uh, and what does it mean to be poor uh, and so we come to the church of smyrna right this is a great church jesus jesus and nothing to to say about this church and as we kind of understand and look at this church i think we'll be challenged by the values that they bring forth for us uh, Revelation 2:9 Jesus says to them I know your affliction and your poverty the word there is really abject poverty right not just wanting for a meal or two but really really struggling struggling I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan so here is a church that has no money right very little money Individually, corporately, they are just struggling to make ends meet, and yet Jesus says, "You are rich. Right. You have it." Uh, this redefines wealth and poverty for us, don't you think? It makes challenge us to think of what what are the really important things in our life, because we don't need money in order to have a healthy spirituality with God, right? doesn't mean money's wrong, but it just means that you know, when we think about the things that we have right, in comparison to our walk with God, what should shine out more, what should have our attention and our heart, it should be Jesus. My guess is that they were rich because in spite of their poverty, they were generous to God. They were generous to God's people, one another. They were also faithful to God's word and the testimony of Jesus. And you know they're suffering because, you know, in in that verse, um, the the people who were slandering them were Jews. Uh, I think this is the period of time where there is what we call a parting of way between Judaism and Christianity. Right? When it it first started, Christianity came out of Judaism. Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, if you want it. Uh, Initially, people really couldn't tell the difference. At least the outsider could just see that this is some sort of a Jewish sect. But as time progressed, the Jews start to realize that Christians are a threat. They worship a different messiah. Um, and they worship a, a, resurrected, a crucified and resurrected messiah. And the Jews started to turn on the Christians. The Christians are the ones who, you know, they are the atheists. Can you imagine Christians being called atheists? The reason for that is because they don't go to the temple to worship the pagans' temple, right? the pagans' god. They don't worship the emperor. And so whenever there is a natural calamity or there's disasters, Christians are often the ones to be blamed because they didn't pray the gods are unhappy. And the Jews are the ones who are slandering them. But Jesus says, look, they are not true Jews. Right? Very telling, Jesus described them as a synagogue of Satan. That's pretty harsh, in my opinion. Imagine someone calling this gathering satanic. The church at Smyrna was poor, it had no money, it wasn't after any money, and the result of their way of life brought them persecution, especially from the Jews. So, again, I think it's an appropriate question to ask, you know, what's our own attitude towards financial security, material possession? Do we hold on to it thinking that the survival of our church depends on it? Or Is our survival depending on the one who is walking among us? Right? I'm not saying that we don't need money. I'm just saying that sometimes the priority is important. Because if Jesus is the one that you are walking, that money is just a two. When Jesus comes again, that two is gone. What's our attitude towards financial security? Our own finances, our our own, you know, what are we running after is another way of saying it. Further, what are other people saying about us as a church? Uh, Are we suffering for the gospel or are we comfortable? These are challenging times. And if we are prepared to step out, then I think Satan will be at work. Uh, he's very good at doing that. He brings division, persecution, and, of course, he brings confusion in terms of doctrine and teaching. Uh, lots of things to think about, uh, but it is a spiritual warfare. So far, we've seen a really good church, Smyrna, a really bad one, surprisingly, but the rest was somewhat mixed. Right? So very quickly, uh, these are churches that I would say have false teachers and false practices in them. Three groups were highlighted. The first group were the Nicolaitans. We don't really know a lot about them, apart from the fact that Jesus singled them out twice. Uh, There's a theory, it's a theory, uh, that this heresy came out from a guy called Nicholas. Nicholas, not to be confused with St. Nicholas, right? He's responsible for another heresy. Um, (laughs) Not his fault. Uh, Nicholas was a deacon, all right, Acts chapter 6, you remember when the, 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 the church was growing and the, the orphans and wid- the, the widows were not taken care well enough and the church said, well, we need deacons. All right, seven appointed and Nicholas was one of them. So the theory goes, according to church tradition, that in, in the end, Nicholas turned away from the truth and he led a group of people from there. All right, so again, these things do happen. Uh, what I think here is almost like a cult. Right, a cult is always associated with a founder. The person is very strong, he's very controlling, you're not allowed to deviate from his teaching. Uh, Often it becomes a movement, right? Because it it spreads like wildfire. There's something that's attractive to it, it's appealing for some reason. And we know that these Nicolaitans were active both in Ephesus and in Pergamon. That's the first group. The second group was a group of people who were practicing idolatry uh, and sexual immorality uh, Jesus described them as following the way of Balaam. Right? The story of Balaam in the Old Testament was Balaam, uh, well, he's a prophet, uh, failing to curse God's people. He then came up with this scheme. Right? He tricked the Israelites into uh, eating food offered to idol by being attracted to a Moabite woman. So they didn't have sex with the Moabite woman because that was a fertility cult. That's how, you know, it came through. Right, the understanding in the ancient world is that you know, in order for the earth to produce uh, the fertility, cow, uh the act of consummation uh, brings forth the, the production of the earth in bearing fruits. Right, that's kind of how the thinking. But you know, there is a group of people who are holding on to that teaching in you know in the church. Uh, that's scary. Right, that that's where a church that is teaching the truth has got people who are teaching something that is different. Uh, finally, the third group is in Tyatira. There's a false teacher, false prophetess, called a woman called Jezebel. The teaching a the practice are very similar to you know the uh, the other group. Right? It's all about sexual immorality, uh, uh, idolatry, but she has some sort of esoteric secret knowledge that only she has. And if you want to access that information, uh, you have to go through her. Jesus calls that a satanic knowledge. So again, we don't know the details, but we know that uh, it is something that is condemned by Jesus. Uh, Jesus described the people who follow her as committing adultery. Again, adultery is, you you commit adultery when you're married. You're promised to someone, to be faithful to someone, Uh, And yet, in in worshiping the idols and following these practices, uh, they are committing adultery with God. Uh, We see really that actually there is a force behind all of it, right? All of this is pointing to a spiritual warfare. Satan is behind all of this, right? His name comes up in quite a few places already in chapter 2. Right, and we, we shouldn't be surprised as we study this book that there is going to be this big confrontation right, between Jesus and Satan. Right, this is spiritual warfare. Right, he's described uh, in the Church of Pergamon, for example. He says, no, I know where you live. You live where Satan lived. Now, that, you could think that oh, Pergamon is such an immoral place uh, that Satan lives there. Actually, you know, from what we know, uh, it's no more immoral than all the other places, the seven places, right? There's a lot of temples going on. There's pagans worship. Uh, what I think, what the scholars are pointing to, what I think is right, is that Pergamon is really, uh, at that time, the center of the Roman government, right? That's where the government sits and me. I describe it as the Canberra, right, of the ancient world, right? That's where the government is. That, that, that's where they make policy. And to describe Satan's having a throne there and the influence there is another way of saying that this is Satan's world. Satan is at work influencing the structures of our world such that he, he moves it to his agenda. Very subtle, very clever. And we shouldn't be surprised as we study the book of Revelation that you know, Jesus is going to describe the, the, the traders, right? the economy of the world, the governmental system that we are in, In the end, right, it's Satan's agenda. Satan's control that. But Jesus could tell, Satan could tell Jesus, I'll give it to you because they're all being given to me back in the gospel. And so Satan is at work, right, even inside the church, right, the churches where Satan had a foothold. We don't want to become a synagogue of Satan. We've got to be very, very careful. But this is where he comes to work. Satan works among us to bring disunity, confusion, uh, and he, he does it through false teaching and false practices. Satan is at, at work in the system of the world. The city of Pergamon itself is where Satan lives. Uh, maybe the, the most important take-home message for us is to expect opposition from Satan. If we really want to, be, you know, to have our first love for Jesus, to follow him radically then I can guarantee you that Satan will be at work. It is spiritual warfare. He works to corrupt government. He works to corrupt marriages. He works to corrupt the church. But we don't have to be afraid of him. So back to the point that I started with. See, the idea of chapter 1, right, anchoring his message to the churches, is this, right? Jesus is the victorious one. As Jesus promised victory to those who conquer, it's because he has conquered it himself. Right? It's already been won. So we don't have to be afraid of Satan. And the irony is that Jesus didn't bring his army. I know that Revelation is gonna figure figuratively, figuratively, figuratively talk about this army and this battle, right? The analogy, but Jesus defeated Satan on the cross by dying in obedience to God. And I think that's the secret. That's the pattern for us, brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to die to ourselves. We need to carry the cross and follow Jesus' example. That's how he became victorious. It's It's ironic. We die, we live. If we want to live, in the end we die. That's the gospel message. Jesus is calling us to follow him, and that means dying to ourselves. Look, if you're sitting here and you're wondering, well, how do I make sense of all this? How do I follow Jesus with all my heart? What does it look like in reality? Then Come and talk to me. Come and talk to some of our staff. We'd love to show you. It it, it will look different for different people because our priorities, our life stages are different, but it all points in the same direction making Jesus number one, and making him our first love. I'm going to pray. We might have time for some questions.